Hi, this is and this chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Thursday, February the 16th, 2023. Um, we're in the business of historical recreation, sort of historical fiction or uh, near fiction, near nonfiction. Uh, we did a show earlier this week with um, a youngish English writer, Louise Hare, um, on how to write a successful second novel, both her first and second novels. Both, I think, are going to be big successes. Her second is called Miss Aldridge Regrets. Um, is um, designed to bring back to life the role of uh, black women in the England of the 1930s and reveal and underline that they had a voice, that they had a presence up until that point in Louise's imagination, I think, and for many other English people, they were invisible. Uh, my guest today is in a similar sort of business as Louise Hare. Lynn Cullen is the author of many books. Uh, many of you will be familiar with books like Sisters of Summit Avenue, Twain's End, Mrs. Poe, which was a New York Times bestseller, The Reign of Madness, The Creation of Eve. Uh, I am Rembrandt's daughter, and in, in all senses, um, Lynn is bringing history back to life. Um, I'm quoting her here. She carefully removes the layers of varnish and patina from each character's story, restoring her thought through the literary imagination. She's in the business of bringing women back to life, invisible women, women who haven't been noticed and should have been noticed, and she's back uh, with a new book, which is very much in the tradition of Lynn Cullen, uh, The Woman with the Cure, a historical fictional recreation of a woman who perhaps um, understood the cure for polio or came to the cure of polio before anyone else, but we don't know much about her. Uh, Lynn is joining us now. Lynn, where are you? I'm at Atlanta, Georgia. Okay, is that where you live, or yes, yes, um, uh, for the last, uh, several decades? <laughs> I know uh, you. You were born in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Yeah. Fifth girl in a family of seven children. You seem to yeah. have had a very typically American upbringing. Is your fiction, in a way, a kind of autobiography, a reminder that? women shouldn't and can't be forgotten? Uh, yes. Um, uh, if I understand the question, uh, that, well, where it came from, from my upbringing was um, that I've always had an interest in history because I was always, talk about my all-American youth, we were always taken on camping trips and traveled the U.S. and then, as I got to be an adult, I traveled a lot around Europe. And I was always looking for the history and things because that's what my father taught me. Um, we were always, we always went to historical sites and were taught to look for the history, for the story of the place. And that stuck. I do that to this day, I can't help it. Um, and it's a joy to be able to write, you know, trying to look into the past and 
in particular, uh, it's it's rather astonishing to see uh, how women have really been hidden from view. And this is definitely the case in the 1950s in America where my book takes place. Um, it actually starts in the um, early 40s and ends in the 60s. But this is a time that for women in science, they had to really battle. And my character in particular, her discovery ended up about changing the world, but she wasn't allowed to go after it um, because she wasn't part of the you know male hierarchy. In fact, she was the first woman professor, full professorship at Yale University. Right, she uh, <laughs> she was in the medical school there. Let's get to your woman, the woman with the cure name, and I have to admit I'd never heard of her. <laughs> Dorothy M. Horstman. Most people, I don't think, will have will have heard of her. She's the woman with the cure. Tell us about her, Lynn. How did you personally discover her? Uh, I was uh, well. I was looking for her, and it was hard for me to find her. I knew I wanted to write a book about the race for the polio vaccine. I had heard of Salk and Sabin and their, you know, fierce competition. But I was really bothered by that, thinking, well, they they talk like like Salk and Sabin single-handedly each found their own polio vaccine. They didn't, they have teams of people. And I thought, what about women? What, what were women's contributions? And it turned out uh, after much digging, I found Dorothy Horseman, whose discovery opened up the doors uh, for finding the vaccine. She uh, was the first to understand how polio worked in the body. So tell us about you. You mentioned us, Salk and uh, Sabin. Uh, of course, both men. Surprise, surprise. Uh, perhaps. Uh, why were they the ones who got all the acclaim when it was Dorothy who, you suggest, perhaps discovered the cure for polio? Well, first I should clarify: she didn't discover the cure. In fact, you know, she um, discovered how polio worked in the body, so they could figure out how to do a vaccine. So these are Jonas Salk and Albert Bruce Sabin. They're the ones who are famously associated with the race against polio. Right. And they were very conscious of wanting to be the ones to be first. They really fought for, for the limelight, for press, for money. Funding was a big thing. And Dorothy, who uh, she worked for the Yale Polio Study Unit, which was the unit that was fly, flown all over the world to every polio outbreak. She had more experience with polio than anyone, but uh, uh, she, she wanted to do what she could to stamp out this horrific disease. And she didn't waste time on the limelight. She was never- Is there something, it's um, probably a leading question, Lynn, but is there something rather, male about Salk and Sakin and something rather female, both in a good and bad way, about Dorothy Horstman? Uh, do they fit the stereotypes? Certainly the stereotypes of scientists in the middle part of the 20th century. Right, right. Well, yes. And that was such an ironclad stereotype in the mid-50s uh, for, you know, in science. Um, like I said, they overlooked her, and in fact, if if they had given her the funding and the time, 
to pursue her her discovery, they would have had a vaccine at least several years earlier. But no, they just kept thinking these guys, you know, they, they're the ones. Uh, fact, hold on, Nolan. Who, who is they? Is this okay. the mayor? This Is this the medical establishment? The yes. people controlling the research money? Yes, exactly. This is the scientific community. And is this, this is the March of Dimes, uh, who did most of the funding at the time. Um, so, yes, it, that's who they was. <laughs> well, tell us before we get to the details, the nitty gritty, rather ugly nitty gritty of, of why Dorothy Horseman didn't get the money. Tell us a little bit about her background. Um, as you say, she was the first uh, female professor uh, at the Yale School of Medicine, quite an achievement. She studied at UC Berkeley, didn't she, as an undergrad? Yes. Um, yes. And she uh, got her medical degree um, through um, UC. And then she um, had she had a very hard time finding a place to do her residency. She w went to Vanderbilt and was only given the job because her resume had D.M. Horseman on it. And the guy who did the hiring um, forgot that he had talked to her. So when Dorothy Millicent Horseman walked in the door, he he just healed. He was not happy with her, but he didn't send her away, and she got to do a residency. How aware was she that this male establishment was discriminating against her oh, very, as a woman? Uh, very, very. And how angry was she? Well, uh, I don't know how angry she was because she was actually a very... Um, noble person and very kind and gentle and cared about the things that mattered instead of, you know, how, how she looked to the world. She sounds a little saintly. Did, did she have any warts at all? Anything about her that bothers you? No, <laughs> actually she was saintly uh, that, you know, she said this, one of the things that, um, I used as a starting point for this for her story is she told colleagues that women who want to achieve what she achieved can't have it all. And you think, geez, you know, she this woman changed the world, but she was quite aware that she had to give up something. Um, it, you know, like she couldn't have the personal life that men just took for granted. They could have their wives and families, you know, the, their wives would take care of things. And she, I, if there was any anger, or any bitterness, it was that she knew she had to give up things that wouldn't be expected of men. So but let's get to the, the core of the story. Of course, Polio is perhaps the most famous victim of polio was an adult, uh, FDR. Um, and in fact, we did a show last year, Becoming FDR, The Personal Crisis That Made a President by Jonathan Darman, who suggests that it was his experience in, in, in getting polio that gave FDR the humility that eventually made him not just president, but a great president. How much of a curse, a blight was polio in the 1930s and 40s? Uh, and 50s. It was worst of all in the 50s. It was, um, well, it was the second most feared thing in America after nuclear war. You know, that was a time, the 50s were a time when kids had their um, air raid drills, they had to 
hide under their desk and pulling up right behind in fears uh, for their parents and, and the children too, I would imagine, because they'd see their friends stricken with polio. But polio was right up there. It was a real time of fear. Um, yeah, I just uh, watched the Ken Burns documentary series on Roosevelt. And of course, a lot of that featured the, the, the spa that he bought and sponsored. I think it was in Georgia. Right. Um, de de you're right. Dedicated to, to dealing with polio victims. Tell us a little bit about what polio is. It's, is it hereditary? Is it just bad luck? <laughs> it's, it's a virus. It, the polio virus. It, well, it's just a, like coronavirus, there's polio virus. And uh, it travels through uh, um, the mouth and through the, the gut and it gets in the bloodstream and then travels to your uh, spine and, and per paralyzes you perhaps to the point of death. Um, it did not have a huge uh, fatality rate, but it had enough, you know, thousands of kids were dying every year. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the cruelest, just, just, I, I don't know much about it, just judging from FDR, a man of enormous willpower who fought it all his life, unsuccessfully, I guess, in the end. Um, yeah. Why were children so much more susceptible than adults? It just struck kids. I don't know why. For the same reason, Coronavirus didn't affect children, um, you know, in the at least initially, and it, polio just did not strike, pe you know, people more than young adults. FDR was rather on the old side. What, what was he in his thirties when he got it? Yeah, I think he caught it uh, after a sailing trip. So, right. so here we have this this terrible um, virus, um, and we have this brilliant young doctor, Dorothy. Um, Dorothy M. Horseman, who, uh, as you say, only got her job because the guy interviewing her thought he, she was a man. Um, <laughs> did she have a particular calling to, a, to, to, to researching uh, polio? Did she have any experience in her family of it? Well, uh, she early on, um, you know, she was an English major in college which was astounding she went to school because her family was very poor. They were German immigrants. Her parents worked in a bar. I, I found this out by looking at um, city directory and, and censuses. And, yeah, she was um, born in Spokane, Washington. Right. And uh, her childhood was, would have spent in San Francisco. So, you know, she had these poor parents, but she, she got into college and she was really moved by... Um, how sulfur drugs, which were brand new then, um, were saving people's lives. And, you know, this I had a personal stake in this myself. My own dad, when he was a teenager, had meningitis, spinal meningitis. Mm. And he, he nearly died. Uh, he was like curled in a fetal position and, you know, stiff as could be. They had, they had given him up. He was 16 years old. They had given him up, but they gave him sulfur drugs, which were experimental at the time, and he recovered. And here I am. So you know, it was it was fascinating that you know, I guess that always has been planted in me, you know, about the fascination with with um, you know miracle drugs, and that's what got her that she could see what 
what miracles could be wrought by science? So in, in simple language, and you're, you're good at this, Lynn, because you're a, a historical novelist. Um, what, how did she approach the problem that others didn't understand? What, what is her legacy in scientific terms? Uh, well, she found, um, okay, I'll back up. The, um, the most respected minds in science at the time decided that polio traveled from the nose and through the body. And they could not figure out how it got you know, to the spinal cord. You know, it didn't make sense to them, but they were sure because the head guy, uh, Samuel Flexner, back in the 20s, said, this is how polio works in the body. And because he was the most respected man in the field, everybody said, okay, we're trying to figure out how it is because we know he's right. And she found in uh, her uh, polio study unit job, you know, when she go to these outbreaks and bring back samples from every um, patient and their families. One time she found polio in the bloodstream. She And she, um, after that thought, you know, it has to be in the blood. But everybody kept looking uh, for it and their timing was wrong. It appeared uh, before the infection. And, you know, to now it seems like no brainer kind of stuff these days, but back then, you know, they struggled and struggled and they didn't want to hear her saying, you know what? No, it's in the blood. I've seen it one time. Just let me keep, let me do some experiments to find it. So they finally did. Um, and really she was allowed to do it at Yale after they got wind that another man at another university, David Bodium, was thinking about looking for poliovirus in the blood. And that's when they said, go, Dorothy, go. And so when she made her discovery, uh, David Bodian found it at the same time. Um, so she had to share that that honor with him. And then what about um, Salkin and Sabin? What are their roles? Did they take some of this research and then develop the 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 vaccine yes in particular sabin she and sabin work very closely together and it was sabin's vaccine that broke the the trend of of uh polio salks worked some it really brought down some of the uh, transmission rates and um you know <laughs> it was way better than nothing but sabin's was more advantageous at the time these days, what are were the numbers on polio? You said it was really bad in the 1950s. How many people? I mean, once you got it, that was it. You were paralyzed essentially. You never got polio and completely recovered. Is that fair? Uh, well, a uh, couple things there. First of all, a lot of people got it and didn't know it or had very right. mild cases, you know, fever. So it's like COVID in that sense, too. Very much like COVID. They'd get fevers, whatever. So sometimes people did know, and it was very mild. So it was extremely widespread because um, for it to have just a few people who finally got, um, I say few percentage-wise, it would be, I'm so bad with numbers. I, I need it in front of me. But it, I'm going to say tens of thousands of people were paralyzed each year, each summer. It only came in the summertime. Um, Tens of thousands of young people, babies, 
were paralyzed every year in the 50s, early 50s, and then um, thousands uh, died of it. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, one to 10,000 died of it. And then uh, I don't, I think it was less than 50,000. But the bad thing is with all these paralyzed kids that it's cumulative. The polio epidemics began in 1916 and rolled around every summer. Some summers were worse than others, but uh, the cumulative effect was that there were hundreds of thousands of children who were, you know, having to deal with the effects of polio. And did did Dorothy ever have any access to FDR? Given that he must have had a particular interest in scientific um, scientific solutions, medical breakthroughs on this front? You know, I, I didn't see any um, uh, indications. Of, I never saw anything in her letters or anything about her meeting with him. She certainly saw uh, the man who was the head of the March of Dimes, who was very much um, in March and step with FDR, who was uh, Basil O'Connor, um, who, you know, was the, he held the purse strings for the March of Dimes and he was much uh, sought after by Salk and Sabin for funding for their vaccines. They were both trying to get, get the most money. And actually Salk won out because Sabin was a very irascible type um, and very arrogant and he just turned people off. Whereas Salk was very um, good-natured and uh, very open, easy to talk to. He was very much better on PR. And that's how he got the most funding. And that's how his vaccine, which is actually a simpler vaccine to, to make than Sabin's. So that's how Salk's was first. And if I may add one thing, Salk's vaccine was actually developed from a woman's vaccine, Isabel Morgan. We really should be calling it the Isabel Morgan Morgan vaccine um, because it was work. She just stepped out of the race because she felt it was moving too fast. She wasn't ready to test on children. And so she just bowed out and Saul kind of took over. But he took over her recipe. Um, Lynn, like your other books, I said a lot of uh, bestsellers like Mrs. Poe, you do serious research um, in, in, in writing historical fiction. I, I'm curious, you read all the letters, you know Dorothy Horseman inside out. Why not just do history? Why, why have the fictional element? Ah, that's a good question that I like a lot because I, I, I'm really not a biographer. And the point of my book is really not to do Dorothy's biography. It's to tell a story. And the story ended up being, and as a writer, I never quite know what my story is till I'm all done and I sit back and go, ow. Oh. And this story is really about connection and how we're all de-connected and we all play our part. We all need each other. And I feel like if we only knew how connected we were, we'd be an awfully lot more kind each other. Um, so that's what it's about. It's all these people in this race 
I, it's not just Dorothy's story. It's, it's, I tell many people's story as I, as I go. And but so how much license do you give yourself in terms of making stuff up as opposed to relying on the historical record, given, um, given that you have, I wouldn't say necessarily a, a didactic approach to writing history, but you certainly have a, a kind of agenda. Do you sometimes make things up to, to, to suit your mood or to suit your message, or do you sometimes just acknowledge that a fact is a fact and even if you don't particularly like it? A bit of both. Um, first of all, uh, I fictionalize um, events, personal events and of things that they say. Um, I, I use the framework of, of real history. And in fact, in this case, the framework that I stuck very close to like I didn't make up stuff and I had to make everything fit with it was the science and the discoveries. I had to, I had to make that clear and simple. Um, but I, I'd made up, you know, a few things about her relationships and things like that. Everything could have happened. That's always my rule of thumb. It has to be able to. Did she, did she have a, a love life? Did, was she ever married? No children, I assume. She, no. And this is one of the things that I took some liberties with. Uh, I saw in her portrait, her official portrait that Yale commissioned, there's this little Danish dish on her desk. And I saw it in other pictures and I thought, Danish, this little Danish memento that's really dear to her. And I've spent some time in Denmark. It, it happens to be pretty dear to me. But um, I, I gave her a boyfriend who, his history actually could have happened too. It's based on, um, he's someone I envisioned who, there was a group of uh, school teachers um, and headmasters who banded together a very small band and, and um, evacuated, helped to evacuate the Jews from Denmark when um, they being, when Germany was um, occupying Denmark, they found that they were going to start to be restricted and, and uh, you know, ghettoized. And so these, this group of school teachers got them out by the dark of night on little tiny rowboats. They went across the sound between Denmark and Sweden and, and they were saved um, by that. So I, I love that story. So this boyfriend has that um, uh, going for him. Sorry about my dog in the background. Can you hear her? The spirit of the boyfriend. Um, Lynn, uh, she did get in an at times um, obituary. The headline is Dr. Dorothy Horseman, 89. This was back in 2001. I mean, she didn't die until January of 2001 uh, with, the, uh, with the headline Made Strides in Polio Research. So she was in a way recognized, wasn't she? Um, yes. I had to do something with my dog there. Um, you didn't kill uh, it, did you? <laughs> no, she's too good for that. Anyhow, um, she was recognized. Well, yes and no. I mean, you know, the reason I saw this portrait of her is in at Yale, they had no picture, but this old crummy photo on the wall. They had all their 
their um, past medical heroes and things like that. And here's this crummy old picture of Dorothy Horseman. And this was only rectified in 2019, which is the year I started my book. I thought that was kind of coincidental. So um, no, she she really, you, you know, she got that nice write-up for her obituary, but really- What should she have? What, what should, I mean, if, if you were doing the obituary now for the Times, what, what would you say in a sentence about Dr. Dorothy Horseman? So the Times says, made strides- in polio research, we could make a joke about that, but I won't. Um, what uh, what should she? What would be a sentence that summarized her work? You know, my handy publicist figured that out for me. Um, the marketing people, and they put it on. They had it on the cover of my book, and it said um, she gave up everything and changed the world. And I realized, yeah, that is her. She gave and. You know, her, that's what the time yeah. instead of saying uh, made strides in polio research, it should mm -hmm. say she gave up everything and changed the world. But she had a boyfriend, so would she give up? No, according um, to you, she well, had a Danish boyfriend. You have to, well, you have to read the book and see what happened there. Yeah, well, we won't give away all the secrets. Uh, in yeah. all seriousness, uh, Lynn, clearly you're a writer with an eye on the present, uh, and it's a book not just for women, but I think particularly for female professionals, aspiring female professionals. We've done a lot of shows on that. Uh, one with uh, Christy Hunter-Arscott last year on the importance of being bold as a woman. Another with Claudia Goldin on the wage gap. A third with Lise Vesterlund uh, on how to put a stop to women's dead-end work in corporations. What what are the lessons from Horseman's life, you think, that are relevant in today's world where women are still patronized, where they still are not equal with men? Although I think things have probably changed for the better since the time of Dorothy Horseman. You know, I respect that she didn't let it stop her. It slowed her down and she must have been the most frustrated person on earth at times because what she could have done could have saved lives, but she kept going. You know, I love that she persisted saying, you know, that was her. She persisted. She didn't care that she never got glory. Um, she just cared about getting this done. And, you know, she went on after polio was in hand and uh, was instrumental in the rubella vaccine. So it, this was just her life. She's, she saw something that needed to be fixed and she went for it. And uh, I think that is something we could all learn a lesson from. Dorothy, I, I was gonna call you, well, that was a, a Freudian error calling Lynn Cullen <laughs> Dorothy. I'm complimented. <laughs> well, it could be, you could be worse. Uh, I have an alternative title for the book. It's a bit late now, I guess. Okay. Uh, how about you should have called it Go, Dorothy, Go. Okay. Uh, maybe a next reprint. Mm -hmm. I think I'll put that in the headline. Um, I like it. I like it. <laughs> and how long did it take you? Three years, you said? To write this? Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I'm um, hemming and hawing because you know covid those couple years of COVID, you just kind of lost that time and so i i never know about reckoning time these days that 
it seems like a year, but it was two years lost, you know. So I guess it did take uh, two years to, three years, excuse me, to write it. And finally, um, Lynn, um, what did you learn about Dorothy that surprised you, that you didn't expect? Because sometimes you come to these stories and we've heard it all before, Smart, and we've seen movies about it and books and shows on television. The smart woman who is out-hustled, elbowed out by arrogant, less able men. Is there anything in this story that's surprising or unusual? I'd have to think about that. Um, I can't say uh, other than what took me by surprise is how everybody did have a role in this and Dorothy encouraged others' role. She was not, she was not, not out for herself, which I admire. I, I think that women need to be recognized, but um, I, I also feel like the point is doing the work. The point is getting the job done. 